Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 170 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is May 16th, 2011. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. If you don't know, the Peristyle Podcast is our weekly internet radio show talking all about the USC Trojans. And we're going to have Coach Harvey Hyde in the first segment as always. We have Stuart Mandel from SI.com. He's a college sports reporter, college focuses on college football, and he was at uh, in, in Indianapolis this last week talking to the NCAA people. They had a, a big mock NCAA inquiry about State U, and so he got to go through with other members of the media the entire process from when they bring up charges to they go to the penalty phase to the whole thing. So he's going to go into a lot of detail talking about that, how he understands the whole process of when the NCAA investigates a school. He understands that a lot better, doesn't necessarily agree with what they do, but he does understand the process better, and we got a lot of questions for him. And uh, so if you have any questions for us on future shows, just drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address. That's podcast at uscfootball.com, or you can drop us a, a voicemail, 206-888-6755. That's 206-888-6755. Call that number. Leave a voicemail and we can play your voicemail on the podcast and answer your question for me or Coach or Dan Weber or Gerard, whoever you would like to address the question to. Just leave that to us. And the aforementioned Coach Harvey Hyde, we do have in the first segment. We love talking to him. Coach, what's going on? How are you? Everything's pretty good, buddy. Uh, weather, I can't figure out the weather. It's warm, then it's cold, then it rains, then it winds, then the wind blows and so on. But I tell you, as long as we're still here and getting ready for football season, you know, I uh, Thank goodness we're, we could be a lot of other places that are a lot worse. So we've got to be thankful uh, we are able to, uh, you know, have what we have here in California and to all those people in Mississippi and Louisiana and so on, Tuscaloosa. We pass on our prayers and good wishes to all of you out there if you're listening and uh, hope everything works out just fine. Certainly do, Coach. Our, our thoughts and prayers go out to them. And I uh, wanted to thank our sponsor for the segment before we get going, talking some USC football, Southern California Tickets. SCTickets.com is the website, or call them at 1-800-888-7287 if you need tickets for anything, any kind of sporting event. You want to check out some Dodgers games or Angels games, things like that going around in Southern California. And, of course, USC football will be coming up in a few months. Check them out on SCTickets.com. And, uh, Coach, we had a, a, an email this past week from Sam. We didn't get to talk too much about the new Pac-12 $250 million-ish media deal. He felt that that would be an interesting topic for the show. So I wanted to uh, maybe start off the show with that, get your thoughts on the Pac-10's media deal there. Well, I think, first of all, it's uh, about time that the Pac-10 was established and paid and had a, co- uh, a contract with the different affiliates that that it deserves. They've been behind all of the other conferences and so on, and they're, you know, some of the conferences even have their own cable networks and so on, the Mountain Mountain Network and, of course, the Big Ten and so on. 
ESPN is hooked up pretty closely with the Southeastern Conference, and I think that this contract comes along at a great time. Uh, the money is certainly going to generate a lot of uh, opportunities for uh, more parity in the Pac-12. If you take a look, and, and if you're Utah or if you're Colorado and you're coming into the Pac-12 now, you go from a million to two, two million a year like at Utah, all of a sudden they say $25 million a year to each university, which isn't a bad payday. So I think it's great. I think it's great for the conference, and I think it's great to have the games televised and so on. Along with that, though, comes things that uh, you will never have a standard time for your games anymore. Not that USC was having standard times as far as 12.30 kickoffs or so on. You'll have 12.30, you'll have 4.15, you'll have 5, you'll have 7.15, You'll have all different kickoff times uh, as far as for your games. In fact, I think the Notre Dame game even is at 4.15 this year, which is different back in South Bend. So you have to give up something to get something. Right now, I think what happened with the contract, I think at the beginning of the contract, the 12-year contract, it favors the conferences as far as getting money up front. And I think the second half of the contract, favors uh, Fox and ESPN who signed with them these contracts. The reason why is about every six years, the value of your conference uh, television rights normally triple, okay? Normally triple. So the first half of it, which is, uh, say, a six or six-and-a-half-year period, will favor the conferences. And then the second six years or six-and-a-half years will favor the television uh, networks. Why? They will get back what they lost and they'll make an additional third if things continue to triple as far as values of what these packages are. Right now, sports are probably one of the hottest things that are on television. You're able to publicize and have all of your sports on more. You'll publicize more basketball, more track and field. Some of your uh, Olympic sports will be on television more. You'll be represented more out there nationally. So I think it's great for universities. I think it's great for the affiliates. I think it's great for the sporting fans, the fans that love to watch uh, college athletics. And I think uh, as far as for Utah and Colorado is concerned, it's unbelievable. Now, could the Pac-10 have got that contract without Utah or Colorado? That's the big question because without splitting that $50 million up between the two schools, they – the Pac-10 and, and the old Pac-10 would have been able to have maybe an additional $50 million, which is almost what they were getting singly for an entire year, which was, I think, $68 million. So the big question is, does Utah, does Colorado bring to the Pac-12 now uh, the revenue that uh, they received? And it may because now you have a championship game you have an additional game. You have different things, uh, more of a market. So you look at it and you say, well, was it worth splitting the additional dollars to get what we got? And I would have to say now at first I didn't feel Utah or Colorado brought anything to the Pac-10, but I think if it brought these additional dollars to the Pac-10, now the Pac-12 and brought a championship game, which brought I think $25 million are being paid the first year, to, uh, for the championship game, then I'd say, yes, it was worth it. All right, Coach. Good stuff. Well, let's stay along with the uh, the Pac-12 theme here. We have a question, uh, a voicemail question that came in about the championship game. Hello, this is Tom. 
I've got a question for you. I'm concerned about the future uh, Pac-10 slash 12 playoff championship game. It says that it's supposed to rotate to the team that has the best record. That sounds insane. Um, we don't want to play the game in Washington in December uh, in a snowstorm. We don't want to go to Oregon and play in a hailstorm or freezing rain. Um, everybody, starting with the NFL back when they started the Super Bowl, plays their championship either indoors or in a southern location. How in the world did the Pac-10 come up with this idea to rotate it to the team who has the best record? And that also means teams will load their schedules up with cupcake teams when they're not playing in the uh, the conference, uh, which will penalize USC because we have to play Notre Dame every year, provided Notre Dame gets their program going again. Um, what do you guys think about this, and how did this mess happen? Goodbye. Well, I think you're exactly correct. Uh, I think that it is not fair, first of all, to have it at a home field. Uh, when they originally started looking and they came up with the concept of a championship game, they looked at the Rose Bowl, number one. They looked at the uh, San Diego Stadium there. What is it called? Uh, where the Chargers play. Is it, it was uh, Qualcomm. I don't know if it's still Qualcomm. Yeah, Qualcomm. They looked at the University of Phoenix Stadium in Arizona. And I pushed real hard since I have ties with the Tournament of Roses and pushed hard with the Las Vegas Bowl and hard with the Pac-10 and other athletic directors to have it in Las Vegas. Uh, I thought Las Vegas would be a great site. Sure, it only holds 42,000, but the concern was for the Pac-12 was they needed to sell this event out. They needed to sell it out. If they had it at the University of Phoenix, they didn't think anybody would go there to watch the games. They would curtain part of the stadium Maybe 30,000 people would show up because if Arizona State or Arizona are not in the game, how many people are going to come there from Washington or, or SC or so on? But everybody would go to Las Vegas because they'd make it a special event. It's a special event city. I really pushed for it. I really pushed hard. In fact, it, it would have finished second or maybe first. They could have had it there, and they might still have it there. So, uh, and, and you might say, how can I be pushing that? All I did was give them the idea. Okay, I can't push it to be there. I can give it the idea and to connect the right people up with that, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority and the Las Vegas events and, and all the people that put on the bowl games there to host a championship game in Las Vegas. So what they were really concerned about is having a crowd at the game. They had to have it, they decided, in a home stadium. They had to guarantee a sellout. They needed the money. That's why I thought Las Vegas would be a perfect place. Because I know in Las Vegas, if SC is playing Oregon in Las Vegas, the North versus the South, nobody would have to attend from SC or Oregon. The local community itself would sell out that bowl game, okay? Because it might be bigger than the Las Vegas Bowl that they have later on, December the 22nd. So I knew it would sell out there, and I suggested that to the people. So what they came up with, they said, we have to have a sellout at our game. So they said, okay, the team that has the best record will host that game. Now, that's absolutely ridiculous. First of all, it's, it's not a neutral field, and a championship game should be at a neutral field. Playing at Eugene, playing it at the University of Oregon, if SC wins the South and, let's say, uh, Oregon wins the North and they play in Eugene, that's 
if they're ranked higher, is absolutely ridiculous. It, it, it doesn't even make sense. It's not even fair. But then again, you look at it and you say, why would they? I started thinking about this. Why would they take the team with the best record? Now, I have no proof to this or anything, but I've just been thinking in my own mind. And I said, probably because the team that wins that game, if they're not ranked first or second in the country, are going to the Rose Bowl. Now, if you have Oregon that's 11-1, and and let's say the winner of the South Division is SC, and let's say they're, let's say, just, I don't want them to be 8-4, uh, and four, but let's say they're 8-4. and four. If They go to Eugene, or they play at a neutral site, and let's say they beat Oregon. And let's say Oregon is ranked number three in the country, and let's say Oregon is ranked, or SC is ranked number 12 or 15 in the country or less. Well, they'll go to the Rose Bowl. Now, the Rose Bowl is saying at least, now this is my thought, I have no proof to this, that they're saying now our bowl game has a 9-5 and five team in it or 9-4 and four team in it or how many games they play against a team maybe from the Big Ten that may be 12-0. and 0. So it doesn't make it that premier BCS bowl game that it should be. So I would think secretly in their thoughts. Now, I have no proof of this. I even ran it by somebody that I know at the tournament and sort of shocked them that I said that, but they hadn't thought of that. And that's why I would think that's happening. But it's absolutely crazy. It's not giving it a neutral field where it should be two conferences, champions, I mean the northern and the southern playing to see the, who probably in most cases goes to the Rose Bowl or the BCS championship game. So I think it's ridiculous. I think it should be played at a neutral site, and I'm endorsing Las Vegas because I know they'll sell it out there in a $42,000-seat 42, stadium, and I know the ticket prices there will go more from what they would be selling for at Oregon or maybe not at SC because of the larger stadium. But uh, if I believe it should be at a neat neutral site. I agree 100% with that. Yeah, I got no problems going to Vegas, Coach. That'd be fun. <laughs> That'd be a fun yeah, trip. You know what I mean, but I think that's – I just think that people would attend that game because it's not just a championship game. It's a complete weekend of great opportunity for fun and also watching two teams play for the Pac-12 championship and a trip to the Rose Bowl. Well, we'll see, Coach. I mean, maybe they'll change it after the first couple of years. I don't know, but we'll have to see what happens there if there's some some crazy lopsided things that go on because of home field advantage or bad weather or things like that. Um, Jamal wanted to know, there was some news that you know Bryce Butler decided to re- to return. He, he talked about transferring. He sat out all of spring football, the, the junior wide receiver from Georgia. Um, Jamal wanted to know a couple of things. One, he just uh, talking about maybe you just talk about the return of Bryce Butler. And two, with him coming back, do you think that that opens up USC to changing their offense? He'd like to see USC run more of a of a spread, um, like a pro spread that the Colts or or what like Oklahoma does. Maybe get your thoughts on that, Coach. Well, first of all, let me say this: I think Bryce Butler Butler is a heck of a football player. Okay. I think uh, he could be utilized a lot more. He's a big receiver, uh, caught a lot of passes. He's got experience and so on. 
I just don't know what happened with him and his thoughts about not going out for spring ball and talking about transferring. I just don't know what got in his head. Um, you know, uh, if he was going to go, he should have gone. Just hanging around isn't healthy for him or for the team. Coming back as a head coach, I've had these type of experiences before. You know, I don't like it. What I mean, I don't like it because what if everybody decided to take the spring off? Well, I'm not sure I'm coming back. Uh, I got to sit out a semester or sit out the spring and think about it. Yeah, all of a sudden it spreads. It's contagious. The guy got out of 15 days of practice, didn't hit anybody. So, you know, I, I think that it's something you have to consider. It's something, obviously, you don't come back the same status that you were. Uh, you're going to have to be at the bottom of the, to the, the depth chart. At least I'm assuming that. And you have to prove yourself all over. I think what it did is hurt his status as a player as far as playing time. And I think that's probably one thing that he wasn't happy about. But I don't think that helped him as far as getting more playing time. At least, at least it wouldn't in, as me as a head coach, I, I would be very disappointed in him. Uh, I would be happy he's coming back because he is a football player and he gives us depth. And uh, his scholarship was counting anyway, so it won't count against us. And, uh, but I think that he would have to come back and pay a price in order to come back. You just don't take the spring off and decide to come back and say, I've changed my mind, and play again. I think he was smart doing what he did, though. Uh, as an individual, I think he'd be a fool to leave USC, finish the season and finish his career at USC, get his degree at USC, and still remain a part of the program But and, and family. But I think he's going to have to really prove himself more than what he had proved himself before, at least to me as a coach he would. I mean, uh, he would have to prove to me he wanted to come back and wanted to play before he'd play. And I would never put him above somebody else until he proved that to me that uh, he is willing to go the extra effort, make up some extra time that he missed in the spring, and also uh, prove to his teammates that he really wants to be there. Because his teammates are the ones that are looking at you as a coach and saying, Coach, he missed all spring. Now he's coming back and he's just playing now with us and goes right back to where he was? No. He might be coming back, because I believe in everybody getting a second chance. He got confused a little bit. He had to, you know, think about it. He's coming back, but he has to do certain things to be able to play and be a part of our program. I think he'd probably be a part of my scout team for a while. I really do, and I'd find out just how much he wanted to play football. And if he didn't want to play it that bad, then he would have that opportunity of transferring. So that's how I feel on that. And then what about, I mean, we get a lot of questions about, can USC switch to this offense or this defense? I mean, I, do you see them kind of switching to anything while Lane Kiffin's the head coach? Well, you know, uh, I yes, I do, because you've got some great receivers. And you better take advantage of your great receivers. I think it's really important that you utilize the talent that you have. It's really important that you utilize your talent to spread the field and and have someone really worry about what you do offensively and and have a philosophy on offense of what you're trying to do. You have to believe in what you have, what you're going to do to win. You don't have to do a lot of things, but you have to do what you do well, especially when you have better players than someone else has. Why limit their abilities or limit the playing field by 
not doing what you do well or doing what I call too much, confusing your great athletes. And right now, uh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure if they run the ball real good or they pass the ball real good. That You've heard me talk about things like that series and packages and what do you what offense is this they are running. I mean, I'd like to say, what is the offense you're running? Just don't call it a pro. What are your series? What are your routes? What is your thinking? What is What comes off of what and so on? So I know as well as the team knows. So if that's what they were to decide to do, then do it and do it well. And I think they could do that very well. If it's lining up and knocking somebody off the face of the world with their old pitch like they used to have and do that, do it. And do it well and play action pass. You've won national championships with that type of play. Uh, this past year, uh, Alabama has won a national championship. Auburn has run the spread. But basically, you got to run the football, too. You just can't pass the football. And I think that whatever you decide to do, you recruit to that offense and you execute it. You don't get too fancy. You make sure what your objectives and goals are, and then you execute it. Uh, okay, well, let's let's switch to the defensive side of the ball, Coach. Guy wrote uh, called in with a question on the defensive line. He's kind of confused where Armand Armand Armstead is going to play. Um, you know, assuming he can come back healthy if he gets cleared to play. Uh, I know I know the coach is talking about you know Orgeron talked about moving him inside. Maybe you can talk about the the interior of the defensive line a little bit. Yeah, I really think he's an inside player. I watched him outside. I don't think he has quick enough feet to play outside. And, you know, he, he's he's a big guy, but I think he's an inside guy. I thought he always was an inside guy. Um, tough for him to handle and contain and so on. He, I think he's just a little bit too big to play outside as far as having good feet and lateral and so on. I think he's a great athlete. I think he can be very dominant inside. They could own the inside with uh, the three down guys, four down guys they're going to have in there. I really do. I think is uh, uh, what's his name? Uko. Yeah, so George Uko, Dejan oh, Harris, George and, Uko, Christian, and Christian Tupo will probably be the other guys. Right. I'm going to tell you, with those three rotations in there, if Armstead can play, I tell you, and, and the others that they're getting in and others, I think they're really going to be. I think on defense, their defensive front and their secondary are really going to be good. And I think the linebackers are really going to improve over last year. Overall, wise on defense, I think they're going to be much more talented and I think much more athletic than what they were last year. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, Armstead's an inside guy, should be an inside guy, uh, hold his ground, hit the gaps. He's big, he's tall, deflect passes, doesn't have to pursue as much down the opposite side of the line of scrimmage and make plays. You know, when you watch a great defensive end, he'll run down plays from the backside when he's firing off the line of scrimmage. He'll roll right down the line of scrimmage and catch somebody. I don't think uh, Armstead could do that from the outside. I didn't think he applied the pass rush from the outside that he should have with a guy with his ability. But I think Perry and these others, I think Perry's going to have a great year. These other guys will be able to play the outside better and inside will give you a better rotation because last year they didn't have enough great players to rotate enough with their inside players and they got worn worn down but uh, 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 I, I think is and I don't know if you've had a chance I just want to say this his brother Armstead uh, the kid that's that's committed what's his first name Eric uh, or Eric, what is yeah. it 
Boy, I'm going to tell you, I watched him on video the other day. Now, there's a football player, and there's an athlete. I'll tell you, when he comes off the line of scrimmage, I mean, he takes everything with you. The goal post, everything goes down. If the goal post is in the way, they go down too. I mean, he actually gets off the football and knocks the players on their backs when he's playing. So I think he's a great addition. Great basketball player, too. I played both uh, football and basketball at USC. Great defensive player, but I was so impressed with him as an offensive player, and he's already committed. And if he isn't a five-star, I don't know what a five-star is, okay? <laughs> I mean, you might you might call him a four-star or whatever. I don't know what a five-star is, then. You're going to have to show me Superman, okay? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think USC fans are looking forward to seeing him coming in uh, next year. Uh, we got one last question, Coach. Uh, Walter, he's in London, England. We like the international questions. Um, I'm not sure if you heard about this at all, Coach, but there was a bunch of rumors going around last week, and it was mostly on Twitter, and then there was some other stuff about alternate USC uniforms and, and black jerseys or black helmets and things like that. And Walter wanted to know, what is the deal with the the rumors about black jerseys and or alternate uniforms for the UCLA game? Is there any truth to these? And if so, how do we kill the idea dead? And just at least on Twitter, Coach, there was a lot of negativity from USC fans not wanting to see things like that. And I think a lot of clothing companies like Nike like to see alternate uniforms because it's a way to kind of boost sales and do something new. But traditionally, it's not something that you see something. You don't see that happening at USC all the time. No, and I agree with uh, the USC fans who uh, feel that tradition and all of that is so important. I agree with the White Sox, too. I don't believe in changing anything that's developed the tradition and the football program at USC or basketball or anything else. I'm against that 100%. I think a lot of that may have to. I haven't seen the contract. may have to do with the contract that USC has signed with Nike. Nike is big. Look at the University of Oregon. They wear a different set of jerseys every game almost or some type of format of mixture of jerseys and pants and helmets. Uh, I'm big on tradition. I'm big on wearing the same thing that everybody has worn before. I'm big on turning on a football game, and I don't have to have someone tell me who's playing. I can turn on the TV, and if it's Michigan that's on TV, I know it's Michigan. You don't have to tell me it's Michigan or Alabama or Penn State or USC. You don't have to tell me who's playing, okay? And I think that when you start to change a lot of this, you lose a lot of your tradition. Now, the kids get all excited on changes like this. And the kids, uh, oh, it's great to wear black this and change this and do that and how exciting it might be. But I don't care. As a head coach, I tell you, you guys can get all excited you want. Halloween comes around October the 31st. You wear anything you want, okay? But you won't wear it on the football field. When I was a football coach, my guys came on the field every day dressed the same way as if they came on the field to play a football game. Their socks were pulled up. Their jerseys were tucked in. Their helmets were on. Their snaps were snapped. And they're ready for combat. They didn't want to wear their helmet. Now, they changed this today. They didn't want to wear their helmet. I'd say, you don't want to wear your helmet? Give me, give me your helmet and go in there and scrimmage. If you don't think it's good enough to wear, or take your shoes off and scrimmage barefooted. All of the equipment you wear 
is to protect you and be fitted properly. And we do that for you. Now, I don't know, and I'm not trying to be critical on this, but I am. I really wasn't happy last year to see the C on the jerseys indicating who the captains are. And that might have been a Nike thing. I don't know. Maybe they said, okay, we won't change our jerseys, but we'll do that to bring notice like you and I are talking about it now. Because you distinguish the captain out differently than what I believe it's supposed to be. A captain is your leader. does not have to. You don't have to put a C on my on his jersey to tell me he's the captain. He's a leader of your team. He's your guy. You don't have to tell me he's your captain by putting a C on the jersey. So I think that everything has its limits. And I think that marketing people will take it as far as they can. Maybe SC last year wouldn't wear a different color jersey. So they had to do something different, so they settled on the C. So all the broadcasters, and like right now, we would talk about it to give Nike a endorsement that this is a Nike thing, Nike does this, Nike does that, to sell more of everything. But no, I'm, I'm not in favor of black helmets, black jerseys, yet you see it. And, and I'm not sure, but I think the FC's basketball team has worn black jerseys, haven't they? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. I, I think they did. I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. I think everybody notices that. And, and like the names on the back of the jersey, I remember Randall Cunningham coming to me and say, "Hey, coach, we're gonna uh, we we want our names on the back of our jerseys." I said, "You do." I said, "Why don't you do something on the football field and everybody will know who you are? You won't have to worry about putting your name on your jersey." So you know, I'm not big on that either. Now you know, a lot of schools put the names on their jerseys so you know who they are and so on. But I'm not big on that. I'm not big on. That I'm, I'm for leaving it, and if you do something on the field, you don't have to worry about people finding out who you are, son. They'll make sure they buy a program and they'll know <laughs> who number twelve is or ten is or six is or whatever. Okay. So, and from the stands, you can't see the names anyway. I tell you, but they can see you on television. Yeah, you can see the name and so on, but. Uh, I'm not big for that either, and SC has really not changed that ever, too. But I understand. Tell me if I'm wrong here. I understand they've changed now the tradition. They're going to wear black socks. Is that correct? Uh, there's definitely been talk of that. I don't know for sure. I, you know, I've, I'm not into the whole uniform stuff all that much. I do I do like the tradition. Uh, I don't mind if they did some kind of throwback jerseys where you wear something that looks, you know, maybe the team there's wore. There's no throwback jerseys at SC. They're all the same. Yeah, they are. <laughs> that's true. I mean. It would be kind of like the the eighties and nineties, those when they put the stripes on the yeah on the shoulder those, pad like, thing. Yeah, yeah. But you see, uh, I'm not I'm not for that. And I know we have a lot of younger listeners that think it's cool and stuff to to wear different things and do different things to uniform. But like I mentioned earlier, hey, when you turn on television, you see Penn State playing Michigan. Does the announcer have to tell you who's playing? Or Alabama playing? Uh, uh, Ohio State or SC or some of the traditional great programs in America, do you have to really decide to have somebody tell you? I'll tell you, to some teams that play now, I'm not sure who they are because <laughs> every head football coach comes in and changes the whole uniform. So I don't think that's right. I think there should be a tradition. If it's black shoes, it's black shoes. If it's white shoes, it's white shoes. 
if it's if it's always been white socks at a certain length, they'll be the same length. Uh, in fact, I had a you won't believe this. I mean, I guess I'm sort of overdo it, but I had a thing on the in the locker room exactly how high your socks are supposed to be. And if they're ever higher than that, I sent them back in to put them on the right way. Because I feel if you look good and you start with the little things and you look like a football player and you're all one and you dress properly and you have pride a pride in what you wear and how you look, I think you play better. And uh, that's just the way I am. And, and kids aren't going to tell me what they think they should wear. I mean, uh, that's that's great. You can do that at the beach. <laughs> All right, Coach. Well, hey, great stuff. We appreciate we got a lot of different topics in, and we still got a lot of show left. We get to talk to Stuart Mandel of SI.com, a college sports writer, college football writer. He's going to be coming up after this break, but I just wanted to thank you for, for all your insights there and thank everyone out there for the questions, sending them in. Thank you very much, and thank uh, I thank everybody out there too. So, Ryan, have a great week. You too, Coach. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to Southern California Tickets. And we'll be back in 30 seconds talking with Stuart Mandel. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287, 1-800-888-7287, that's 1-800-888-7287, or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We've got a very special guest in this segment of the podcast from SI.com, Stuart Mandel. How's it going, Stuart? What's going on? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. You had an uh, interesting week last week uh, talking to the NCAA um, back in, I think it was Indianapolis, right? You guys went there? We did. I guess you would call it interesting if you are really into NCAA enforcement. Uh, <laughs> They uh, held a, a seminar, and I give them credit. They, you know, this had clearly been planned for a long time, put a lot of work into it. They invited about two dozen sports writers from around the country to come in and participate in a day-long exercise where we basically um, got to see what it was like to try a fictitious uh, infraction case from the from the second the anonymous tip came in right through the Committee on Infractions Penalties. Wow, so that's a really interesting uh, group. Why do you think the NCAA came out and, and reached out to the media like that? I mean, obviously they're getting bashed around a little bit, and there's been a lot of schools kind yeah. of getting in trouble, but it, it seemed like they were just trying to reach out and let people know and make it a little more transparent of what they do. Oh, well, the, the transparent is the word that we kept hearing a lot, you know, from Mark Emery when he gave the little speech at the beginning and from their enforcement people. Although it's interesting, I know, because I went there to do a story in August, um, this has been in the works since at least then, probably earlier so, kind of a coincidence that all these high-profile cases have happened uh, since they decided to do this. But, you know, the NCAA in general has become more proactive about trying to explain what they do. Um, obviously, it's a, one of the most heavily criticized organizations there is, and one of the most, and in part because of what they do is so confusing. And, and this process, even after witnessing it for a whole day, I understand it. But to try to explain it to the general—I mean, I think the only way the general public would ever understand it is if they all got to sit through the same seminar, because it's 
just so complicated and convoluted. And I, after listening to them, I understand why, but it's unfortunate, and I wish, you know, I wish there was a way for them to streamline it. Yeah, well, I got some specific questions, but I wanted to let people know, if you're not familiar with who Stuart Mandel is, shame on you. But SI.com, check it out, one of their great college football writers. He does great work on there. You can see him on Twitter all the time. He does like to tweet SL Mandel, at SL Mandel on Twitter. You can check him out. We've got to get you as many followers as Bruce uh, Feldman, Stuart. Is that okay? We'll, we'll pump that up there. That's tough, tough competition. <laughs> uh, he gets a lot of FaceTime on ESPN, obviously. But, yeah. um, you know, yes, let's. We'll try to get that done. We'll work on that. You're up to like 35,000. That's pretty good. I only got like 2,000. So that's that's not a bad uh, way to go. And definitely the author of Bulls, Poles, and Tattered Souls as well. That's still available, right? Yeah, I think if you go on Amazon, this book's almost four years old now, so you can probably get a copy for like 99 cents. But yeah, it's, it's, it's available. <laughs> check, check that one out. And then also, I always like talking to fellow podcasters. I, I thought it would catch on a little bit more than it did. I know the USC fans like listening to our podcast, but if you want to listen to a a general national college football podcast, the Mandel Initiative, is a great one. You can check that out on SI.com as well. His recent guest is, he's had some great ones like uh, Urban Meyer and stuff like that. So it's, you're having fun with that podcast, right? We do. Myself and my uh, producer, college football producer, Rally Rubin, we have fun. We get started um, back during the last season of Lost as a Lost podcast. And we, <laughs> we brought it back out to actually talk about college football. And we, we have fun. It's about a half hour episode. We try to get a good guest on and, uh, Talk about what's going on in college football at that time. How many guests do you get? Like, I we've both been on um, the Solid Verbal with uh, right. Dan and Ty. Like, you, you don't get a chance to talk to other people that do podcasts all that often. I'm sure. You know, those guys um, are kind of my inspiration, if you will, in, in college football podcasting. They do a great job, and uh, it seems like there's a lot of crossover. With, I'm coming on their show, and and uh, we've had Dan on, so. Uh, you know, yeah, you're right. It's not often that you get to kind of look at what situation we have here right now. We've got this little podcasting family, I guess, together. We're yeah. trying to get trying to get more. I thought there, you know, I guess probably like 2005, it started to become pretty popular. And I, I would actually check out like podcasting websites and they had different software and groups and message boards and stuff. And it's just kind of died off. Like if people are still doing it, but it's not like this, you know, this phenomena that's been catching, you know, fire and everyone's doing it. Yeah, it's not, you know, I, I don't know what kind of numbers you get in terms of downloads. I, I'm, you know, it's not a staggering amount for ours, you know, compared to what you get when you write a column. Um, you know, but I don't, at this point, I don't care. It's, it's so, it's, you know, half hour out of my week. It's, it's fun to do. And the people that do listen to it seem to enjoy it. So that's cool. Yeah, I think for us, it was mostly because the LA market is, is very professional oriented and mm-hmm. you, you get a lot of, Laker talk or Dodgers talk on local radio. And I'll, I'll do like people will have me on college football and like Lincoln, Nebraska or Austin, Texas to talk about USC. And I, it's hard to get on just locally because they don't really talk about, you know, they won't talk about spring football or recruiting or really anything like that. So that's kind of why we started just because of the market out here, there's not a lot of college football talk on the radio like there are in some other markets. And I just wanted to fill the void between the solid verbal guys who are in their twenties and, <laughs> and relatively new to this and Bino cook. Who you know, has the, the, the stranglehold on the ESPN podcast? I just thought maybe people might want to hear from a voice somewhere in between there. There you go. And you're going to uh, join the the ranks of the married folks here coming soon. Tell us about that. May 29th, I will join the folks of uh, join the ranks of the married folks. Uh, so you know, coming on here and talking about infractions is just a 
a good way to, to kill time until the big day. Yeah, Stuart and I are bonding in that way as well. We both do podcasts, and we're both getting married. I'm getting married the weekend after uh, Stuart, and I think we had our bachelor parties like a week apart as well. So there's, there's some connections there. Yeah, there was some competition for some mutual guests to get to get, come to the, to the bachelor parties. But, uh, no, it's all good. And, uh, and actually, our college football editor at the magazine, Gene Menez, um, same thing, bachelor party that weekend and uh, wedding, I believe, this coming weekend. So, I don't know, it's wedding season, I guess, in the, in the, in the world of the college football media. You kind of have to, yeah. I mean, for for me at least, May is kind of the slowest time, and there's May evaluation stuff for the coaches. But there's not, you know, the students are graduating. There's really not a lot to cover with the team, and probably for you as well. There's not too much going on. It, it makes sense to kind of pick this around this kind of a date to to get married with with so much going on the rest of the year. Yeah, when we got engaged, you know, we knew, and we knew my fiance knew that, uh, you know, the fall is off limits. So uh, May and June <laughs> is usually the the most logical time. All right. Well, best of luck to you and Emily, and let's uh, let's talk a little about a state. You what what was the the infractions that the uh, that they they uh, presented to you uh, in Indianapolis? Well, um, you know, we, when we started the morning, uh, they had us divided into to groups of about four or five, and uh, and we at that point we were playing the role of enforcement officers, people who actually go out and investigate these cases, and the, the case we were presented with. Um, you know, at, the, at State U, Coach Smith, um, the, an ex-girlfriend of a player called and said she'd seen uh, the coach handing out answers to tests in a sociology class to to the to her, her ex-boyfriend and three other players, and uh, and then it turned out he was working in cahoots with a tutor who was you know a friend of the program, if you will, and so you know it ended up being pretty serious stuff, academic fraud. Um, ethical misconduct, lack of institutional control because the uh, coach had hired this tutor like on his own, was paying, you know, the football uh, office was paying for his salary outside of the university. But what was interesting is, um, you know, before we even got to all those charges, you know, you had to decide whether there was enough evidence to even move forward. And our group and a lot of the groups almost didn't go forward with it because, you know, we didn't have any physical evidence. We didn't have a copy of this so-called answer key, and you know, a couple of the, of the you know the key players that that accused the coach of doing this had an axe to grind. They were you know, didn't get enough playing time. They transferred, and there were some inconsistencies. And you know, of course, the NCAA people, as you come to realize, they don't have subpoena power. They don't can't force people to talk. They can't force somebody to hand over a copy of that uh, answer key. So um, you know, we almost didn't move forward with it, but we did. Um, and it goes to show you how close, I mean, this thing ended up being really serious, and, you know, in real life would have cost the coach's career, and uh, there's a very thin line between, um, you know, whether or not you have enough proof to move forward with something. I think that frustrates college football fans a lot because they hear rumors, they hear things on the message boards. Obviously, the most high-profile thing would be Cam Newton. How could he possibly not, how could he possibly still be playing? How was he not taken down by the NCAA? And, you know, because they couldn't prove that he that he did anything wrong. So, and the same thing with a lot of these, you know, recruiting rumors that get out on message boards or even get reported by the media, and and nothing ever comes of it. Now that I've played that role of the investigator, I can understand why. Because they probably didn't get to the point where they felt comfortable enough to proceed. So there was different groups of of members of the media that had they came to different conclusions. 
Yeah, I think there were five groups, and and in the vote ended up being three to two to to move forward. I'm not sure what they would have done if we'd voted not to move forward, since they had a whole uh, <laughs> afternoon exercise planned for it. But it did it did move forward by the slimmest of votes. Uh, who were who some of the other guys that were out there with you? Some of your colleagues? Um, you know, I was in a in a group with uh, Mark Schlebaugh from ESPN.com, uh, Ken Tyzeek from Raleigh News and Observer, John Zollin from Birmingham News. There were a lot of, you know, if people follow college football nationally, they'd recognize some of the names like Pat Forty, uh, Pete Dable from the New York Times, uh, Dennis Dodd from CBS Sports, Dan Wessel and Charles Robinson from Yahoo Sports. I think they wanted to get people who they know write about these kind of cases a lot uh, and so that we would, you know, when we write about them, have a better understanding of it. Because uh, I think, you know, and I'm guilty of this myself as much as I try to uh, get everything right, you know, it's so complicated You'll end up writing a story and then getting an email from the next day from the NCAA saying, well, it was, it was the student-athlete reinstatement committee that did that, not the initial <laughs> eligibility committee. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, you need a master's degree in this stuff. But, uh, you know, I think everybody that came away from that room, when they write about these kind of cases in the future, will do so um, with a lot greater understanding. But, of course, we're just 24 out of thousands of people who write these stories. Um, so then you, so you guys decided three to two that it was you had enough information to go forward. We had enough information to go forward. Now we were only presented with um, at that point just to simplify it. They only presented us with like a portion of the case. So after lunch, they kind of you know they said unseal your your binders and they had the full notice of allegations that was sent to state U and you find out that oh well the you know there was an associate athletic director who knew that the coach had hired this tutor and still let him do it. So, you know, that's not good. Uh, what else did they throw in there? Um, some, uh, there was some, some kind of further, oh, the, the, they gave us the players, uh, every, all four of the players had gotten their highest grades of the, of the, in the quarter in that class. They'd all gotten A's. Um, the professor of the class had, uh, fired the two-year CCM copying answers from past year's exams. So once we got the whole uh, picture of it, it was a lot clearer um, that something had gone down. Oh, okay. And then, so after that is when you have to come up with some sort of penalty? Is that the penalty phase, or I'm not sure which phase that would be after? Okay, so that was, in the morning, that was the, you know, the, the enforcement phase. And those are the people who work in Indianapolis and go out and investigate cases and, and decide whether to... Um, Basically, press charges against the school. It's almost like you're the you're the detective. And then in the afternoon, they'd actually. And this is kind of rare. Cause the committee on infractions is it's so secretive, and nobody's ever been allowed inside of a hearing. So they set up a, a mock hearing, you know, where the room was configured exactly the way it would be. And they actually had two um, uh, former committee members, uh, Joe Petuto from Nebraska, and uh, Andrea Myers from Indiana State. Uh, and then, like, with each of the well, – we got to basically sit back and watch this part of it, and, you know, the various NCAA people were playing the roles of the coach and the, and the athletic director and such, and those and the enforcement people – I mean, the uh, committee members, you know, grilled them. It was like watching a courtroom scene on TV. They, you know, they wanted answers. They, they, they had seen the same report we had, and now they were asking them questions. And then there was somebody there playing the coach, and he had a lawyer with him, and he was trying to defend himself. And uh, to be honest with you, a lot of parallels – to the USC case, not the subject matter, obviously it's academic stuff, but you know, here you had a coach much like Todd McNair who uh, was insistent that, that he was being wronged and that 
you know, how dare the FCA listen to these two disgruntled players? They obviously had an agenda, and uh, you know, and much of the NCAA case hinged on that. Um, you could see uh, what might take place behind those rooms. I mean, the the Nebraska law professor just was just killing them. Uh, they told us at one point that something like 80% of the coaches that go into these things end up crying, and I could see why. Wow. Their career is on the line, and they are just and these. Uh, committee members don't have much sympathy for them. I think a lot of times people say, oh, the NCAA lets people off easy. Like I said, that's the first phase. That's do we have enough evidence to go forward. I feel like once they do, if it does reach the committee on infractions, those people are not, uh, you know, those people don't work for the NCAA. Those people are professors, uh, athletic directors, in a couple cases, actual attorneys. Um, They're not as invested in it, and they take this stuff seriously. They, uh, you know, they get a, handed a case of ethical misconduct and or academic fraud, and, and they want to penalize the people involved. So after they did that uh, hearing, they then turned it back over to us to levy the penalties. And that was, I think, you know, and I've read a, a lot of accounts of people who were there. Uh, it seems like kind of independently we all came to the same conclusion, which is really odd that for all the power these people have, there's no real guidelines for for the punishment. And I expected them to hand us a, a piece of paper that would say, all right, in an ethical misconduct or in a, an academic fraud case, you know, the the team can get this many scholarships, doctor can get this. No, they basically just, you know, they told us that what the types of penalties were, which are scholarship reductions, postseason bans, vacating of wins. Um, if it's a recruiting thing, then, you know, you can limit visits and stuff like that. Uh, show cause against the coach, but there were no parameters. And we asked the committee members, you know, what do you do? Do you look at past cases? And they said, no, it's just, you know, every case is different. It's really hard to do that. And they said, what about numbers of scholarships? And one of them said, well, there's like a unofficial two-for-one rule if there's you know, two scholarships for each player, but that can be overridden if we feel the case is, is more too serious or, you know, deserves more punishment. So, I mean, we just let them have it. You know, when you give a bunch of sports writers a case and say, "Hey, go penalize the team," we 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 killed you. We gave them like, uh, well, we gave them a one-year bowl ban because they had one year of, uh, you know, where the players were ineligible and they went to a bowl. We gave them, we docked them 16 scholarships over two years. Um, they vacated the wins for the two years, and we gave the coach a five-year show cost penalty. And how did we come up with five years? I have no idea, but, but that's what we did. So. Um, that was a that was a real eye eyebrow raiser. I think a lot of, and I'm in reading some of the other columns from the participants. They all kind of came away with the same thing. Like, you know, how can there not be more? Because one of the things you always hear about is inconsistencies. Right. You know, uh, why why are the rulings why are the penalties in one case so much different than the penalties in another? And now I see why. A lot of people like to, obviously fans always think there's some sort of bias against their team. You know, people on the committee must have an agenda against their team. I don't think it's that. I just think it's that they uh, each committee member probably has their own um, personal views of, of you know like one case mem- one committee member might have a personal you know take the agent issue really seriously and some somebody who's violated the agent issue they're gonna they're gonna crush that person or somebody else obviously somebody from the academic side would take academic misconduct particularly seriously so just, people are just given a lot of leeway and they have their own worldviews. And a lot of them don't necessarily work in athletics, so there's a little bit of a disconnect there. 
Yeah, that was the most. Definitely check out Stewart's column on uh, SI.com. And you know, like you said, a lot of people wrote about this. I tried to read as many of those as I could. And it was funny that the, the penalty phase is what seems the most interesting, that they, there's no guidelines where if you commit a crime, if, you know, a petty theft, a misdemeanor or whatever, there's usually, you know, in the court of law, there's some sort of guidelines. This is, a, right. you know, a one year to three year penalty or this kind of fine. And there's there's nothing really like that. And and I think a lot of USC fans were kind of pointing to that two for one rule when we did a lot of digging at during the USC case. You said, OK, for every I think we talked to Michael Buckner, the, the lawyer that um, he was an appeals lawyer there and that, that worked with, against the NCAA. And, and that's what he told us was like a two this unwritten two for one rule. So when people are like, well, Reggie Bush is one dude, why? You know, where did 30 yeah. scholarships come from? Yeah, no, that that was the case that was exactly on my mind when, when they came around and said that. I said, two for one. I mean, I I think I actually asked the Indiana State uh, athletic director, I said, there was a, you know, and they can't talk about specific cases, but I said, but I just flat out said, hey, in the USC case last year, there was one player, so there would have been two scholarships. And she said, well, I mean, that's when she said, you know, if if a case is severe enough, it, we you know, we override that. So it's not like there's a written rule somewhere that says, have to do two for one so um that they'll be quick to tell you it's not a court hearing it's not a criminal case it's a um what, what's the term they use not a legal proceeding it's an administrative hearing uh and their burden for proof also this is notable because you know the, the usc tolerant air defense has been and i think by the way one of the mistakes they made from from the get-go was fighting this like it was a criminal you know like you're criminal uh, defense attorney and you're defending your client, really it behooves you to agree with the NCAA and, and beg for their leniency. And Because their burden for proof is not uh, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, it's clear and compelling evidence. That's what the phrase is used. And so, for instance, in our state U case, I don't think that if Coach Smith were being tried criminally that a, guilt, a jury would have found him guilty beyond reasonable doubt. But the standard is clear and compelling evidence. Yes, there was a lot of evidence that indicated what happened went down. Yeah, I think the terms you used, there was a lot of smoke there, and I think the mm-hmm. NCAA can make that jump to, well, there's smoke, there's fire, unlike what you would expect in, a, in a, an actual trial, in an actual court case. Right. You know, it's similar to investigative reporting, to be honest, I think. Um, you know, one thing they, they said early on that we was a little bit surprising is they can't use off-the-record testimony. So, uh, for instance, that an initial tipster, the ex-girlfriend, refused to go on the record, so they could never enter that into the um, into the case. That the committee never would have known that she even existed. You know, you just have to go out and corroborate that yourself, and that's the same thing when you're a reporter. Um, if somebody comes to you, unnamed source, you know, use that at your at your own risk. You better go out and find some other people who can corroborate that and bring some legitimacy to it. And, uh, I think in, in that sense, there's there's a similar. I think the NCAA standard for for proof is more similar to uh, to the media than it is to uh, a criminal court. Um, you talked in the, the column a little about understanding the process better, but not necessarily agreeing with it. I guess maybe you can explain mm-hmm. what that is. You know, like I said, you know, if you were to sit through that seminar, you would not come away from there saying the NCAA hates USC or the NCAA doesn't know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. I mean, it's an extremely organized process. It's, you know, they have protocols every step of the way that they have to follow. So um, I, gained, I, guess I gained a lot of respect for the people who do the legwork. 
but like I said, I, I, I have a real problem with the fact that people who levy the penalties, who hold the most power in it, aren't held to a similar um, to similar guidelines. Um, and then just let's, you know, the whole process in general. I mean, our case, we were told we were given like a fictitious timeline, and the case took 15 months from start to end. And you know, the USC case took four years. Um, there's got to be a way to simplify it. I don't know what it is exactly because, like I said, the lack of subpoena power is what causes a lot of these things to drag on. But there's got to be a way to, to streamline it. And also, Mark Emmert, the president, I mean, they 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 said there's going to be some changes to enforcement here coming soon. Uh, Julie Rowe Latch, the new VP of enforcement, took over in like December. They said they're going to roll out some changes in June. But I wouldn't expect it to be anything too major. But uh, Mark Emmert said he personally would like to see kind of a reclassification, whereas right now everything is either a major violation or a secondary violation. There's nothing in between. Uh, he would like to have like tiers of violations. And while he didn't give a specific example, I think a good one would be this Boise State case that's come out in the media recently. That's considered a major violation, just so you know, kids getting uh, who were staying on other players' couches and that added up to a certain number of impermissible benefits. Somehow that's considered as serious in NCAA parlance as the Reggie Bush case or the Bruce Pearl case, and that just should be. You know, some of those minor cases that, uh, yes, by the letter of the law they are considered major violations, but in common sense are not major violations, should should not have to go through this same prolonged process with where the school writes a 1,500-page response and goes before a committee. I mean, it's just it's a little too overdramatic sometimes, I think. Uh, and there's only, what, there's only like 38 members that are part of this? I mean, it seems like the NCAA makes a lot of money. You wonder why they wouldn't expand their enforcement or their investigation wings a little bit with all the cases that seem to be coming their way right now. Yeah, there's 38 investigators. There's something like 50 enforcement employees total. And Emmerich said that they are going to add to that, but I don't. they seem to be more concerned about how those people are dispersed rather than how many there are total. Um, you know, they said, look, we, in an ideal world, we'd have 200 investigators, but it's not going to happen. So they're trying to figure out right now what's the best way to deploy these people. And I think... Uh, one thing you're seeing is, um, you know, right? They've been sending people out, and to their credit, they've been sending out people to these seven-on-seven football tournaments and trying to get a handle on that before it gets out of control. Whereas, I think they sat by and let the basketball AAU culture yeah. grow out of control, you know, before they did anything about it. And so you're starting to see some some more sport-specific things like that. I think in the past it was kind of a old-fashioned, naive approach of, you know, we treat. Uh, tennis, the same as golf, the same as men's basketball. You know, now they have a men's basketball focus group. I would not be surprised at all if they, in June when these when they announce these changes, that one of them is going to be some sort of, you know, football recruiting specific group. Um, you know, people that are that are spending their whole year uh, paying attention to the issues that 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 can cause the most problems. I mean. Uh, you know, if a, if a major football program commits recruiting violations, that has a lot more uh, ramifications for college sports, for, uh, for 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 all parties than obviously, you know, the fact that the Boise State tennis coach played a ineligible player. Now, did they talk at all about the the changes that are being made? I, I, apparently, there's going to be changes to the appeal process, and it's really not even going to be more of an appeal now. And they're saying that. You know, you can't compare. They're making it clear that you can't compare P5 
penalties from one you know one case to penalties of another case it it seems like they're making some changes now because the i mean what a lot of the usc fans think is that the precedent that they set with usc with one player getting in trouble with an agent and what do you do when you're a north carolina or a ohio state i mean you'd have to really hammer those programs it seems like they're kind of dialing that back a little bit so people can't make the comparisons between the two i mean that's what they kept saying when we were asking them about the the guidelines that there is no precedent you know that every case is there they did say that you know when we, when we asked how do you come up with the length of the show cause penalty that they they do look at past past cases compared to past coaches but even that has changed because and i didn't know this but the actual what an actual show cause penalty is has changed it used to be uh as recently as a few years ago literally you had to go before a committee and show cause why this person should be employed now they don't do it that way now it's um, they're, they're given certain restrictions. This person can't go on the road recruiting for five years or something like that. So um, that's the only time that they mentioned precedent. In terms of the appeals committee, those changes went in effect a few years ago, and ever since they did, almost none of the you know original rulings have been overturned. And that came, I'm told, from the committee on infractions themselves. They said, look, you know, we put all this work into this. You, you tell us you want us to take this seriously and, and give these schools stern punishments and then we do and then you end up reversing them. So you have to give us, you know, you have to give us the, the authority. You can't keep undermining our authority. So they changed the, uh, I don't know exactly what they changed. They changed some of the wording and the standards for, you know, what constitutes a successful appeal and, and that's why something like, you know, I think, what is it, you guys know the numbers, like only one case. I think only one, yeah. Uh, yeah, has been. <laughs> has been reversed so that you know doesn't make for good odds for USC's appeal. No, certainly not. Um, and we're waiting to hear what's going to happen with there. Obviously, Todd McNair's appeal did not uh, go through or, or it, it wasn't overturned. And that was obviously not a good sign for them since so much of the case is based on his, uh, I mean, the institutional charge is based almost entirely on, on uh, what they say he did. So if they're upholding that, then it's going to be hard to, to then turn around and reverse the, the finding against the school. Yeah, the interesting thing will be to see when he goes to a regular court and sues the NCAA for, for having him lose his job. Then with the burden of proof there and all the kind of questions about the evidence around him, now it's, that's going to really matter now. Yeah, I'm interested to see what would happen because, um, you know, if you were successful, it really um, – it would obviously the NCAA would have to change the way they do things. But I have to think they've been sued before. I mean, plenty of coaches feel like they got wronged by the NCAA and they sue them. and and the NCAA has lawyers too, and the committee has has lawyers, and you know, I think that they must know when they're doing this what the standard is that they have to uphold, and also, you know, these schools. Uh, if you're an employee of a school, if you are a school, if you're a player, you kind of sign your rights away. I mean, you 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 agree to be part of this this voluntary institution or the voluntary association, the NCAA, and to abide by their rules and to abide by the way they enforce rules, whether you agree with that or not. It, you know, I'm not saying you waive your right to, uh, to sue the NCAA, but I'm sure that in the, in the course of the uh, case, if there is a case between Todd McNair and the NCAA, they're going to drag out some language that at some point Todd McNair probably agreed to in terms of his employment that makes it hard to pull that off. Yeah. Um, well, the, the interesting thing coming forward, I guess, would be how you're going to apply the knowledge you gained there uh, in Indy to some of the cases, the big cases that are out there, you know, specifically like Ohio State or anything like that, do you think you have a better understanding of how that case might come 
come down now knowing what you know of what's going on in that case? Uh, um, Ohio State, you said? Yeah. I mean, just I, I don't see how, they, how Jim Trestle has a chance. You know, we, we watched this mock uh, enforcement hearing where they – where it was kind of similar. Coach was having accused of ethical misconduct. On this case, the coach had already been fired by the school, but um, they trotted out the whole, much of the same thing you hear about Jim Trestle, how, you know, I've been the coach for X number of years and I've never been guilty of any violations and, uh, you know, players coming to his defense. And it, they didn't care, you know. All that mattered was did you commit this crime or not. And the same thing's going to happen with Jim Trestle. Did he commit on ethical conduct or not, and in his case, it's right there in the email. So, um, you know, all, the, all this experience taught me about the Ohio State case was um, just just made me further believe that they're going to be in for some serious punishment. People have suggested that, um, well, they might play favors because Ohio State's a major program and he's a beloved coach. You know, the, the better chance of that happening is in the earlier stage, and I think it did happen when they... Um, when the kids were allowed to play in the Sugar Bowl. I mean, there's no question that, you know, the Jim Trestle, I mean, sorry, uh, Jim Delaney lobbied on their behalf, the Sugar Bowl lobbied on their behalf. You know, that's where the maybe there's some um, some some undue influence that goes on. But unless there's something we don't know about, if the committee is following the protocol, uh, they should treat Jim Trestle the same way they would treat uh, a D3 track coach, and the violations he committed are pretty cut and dry. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think when a lot of USC fans look at it, Ohio State's a, a, a program that's definitely played the game You know, more. We have Jim Delaney being on these committees and things like that, being more involved. Mike Garrett at the time, not really involved in any of that, not very friendly, not very right. open. You know, So it's, it's kind of a whole different story. But Yeah, I, I think the more relevant fact is that, or comparison is that, um, Ohio State self-reported this violation and you know, cooperated in the NCAA from day one, whereas Yahoo uncovered the Reggie Bush thing and, and then USC kind of fought it right till the end. So um, and I definitely think that plays a factor. I think if you are accused of something by the NCAA, your best strategy is to fall on the sword um, and, and agree with their findings and, and show them that you're doing something to correct it. And USC did that in basketball and self-imposed some stuff in basketball and never self-imposed anything in football, really fought those charges tooth and nail. And I think that defiance, I don't know whether it was whether it came out in the hearing or, or what, but it definitely came back to hurt them. Certainly. Uh, well, if you have to, well, one last thing, if you have to put your uh, crystal ball in front of you, midway through the, the Big Ten or Big 12 or whatever season for Ohio State, looking at that, what, do you think Jim Trestle is going to be on the sideline there, game seven, eight, nine, things like that? I think he'll be on the sideline this season because I think they'll drag this process out to, to ensure that the school seems pretty, they've dug their heels in. Um, they're they're fighting for him. Um, I think really they're fighting for their their whole program. And so the what the, the hearing is in August. You know a ruling might come down in the middle of the season. Even if it does, they might appeal it. Uh, I think they'll find a way to keep him on the sideline this season. But I don't think he'll be back after this season. And then the only thing I would add to that is, you know, I keep hearing rumblings that new information is going to come out here in the next few weeks um, about further violations in that program. And if so. You know, I I uh, reserve the right to change my opinion, but uh, you know, if it's just solely the charge that he's facing right now, I think he makes it through 2011 and then um, either steps down or is forced out afterwards. Some of the the car stuff, or are you think even other stuff beyond that? 
much like the, the oh. <laughs> you thing. I don't have enough evidence to, to say anything on the record. But oh, no problem. Okay. There's some, some more stuff uh, involving the football program. Yeah, it'll be, I mean, it'll certainly be interesting to see. And uh, I've actually talked with Bruce about this a little bit, Bruce Feldman. And uh, as far as the penalty-wise, like if you just say that a coach can't coach on Saturdays for five weeks, it really doesn't change all that much. I mean, a significant penalty would be having to be away from the program for, for that entire time. Just not being there on the game days, it's really, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. You're still out there recruiting. You're still at practice every day. The only thing you're not doing is, is making calls during the game. Yeah, the penalty, the ultimate penalty NCAA composed that would basically force their hand is that show cause penalty because if they put out like a you know three-year show cause on Jim Trestle in which during those three years he's not allowed to recruit, how can you have a coach who's not allowed to recruit? You know, right. so <laughs> that's that's really the the stiffer punishment than a suspension. Now the other one would be, you know, with UConn basketball they suspended Jim Calhoun, even though people didn't think it was it was very much. They suspended him for three games, but they suspended him for the following season. Well, if they did that with Trestle and they said you're suspended for not in addition to these five games, you're suspended for eight games next season, um, you know, that would be hanging over the program for another year. Uh, it'd be really tough to recruit during that. So, um, you know, it would, at this point, the it's really just expected that they're going to come down pretty hard. Uh, I'm, I know they're going to come down hard on him. Uh, what I don't have any sense of and didn't gain any further understanding of this week is what kind of leeway they have to, like some people suggested, they'll ban them from a bowl game or make, you know, make them give up scholarships. And to be honest, that doesn't really seem to apply here, but, but – Maybe they can. I don't know. All right. Well, Stuart, it was great stuff. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. I don't think we've had you on for like a year or so, so it's great that you'd uh, come back on, and we wish you all the best with the with your marriage and the Stuart, uh, the Mandel Initiative and all of that. Thank you so much, Ryan. Maybe next time we'll talk about Matt Barkley or the uh, <laughs> you know, Monfield stuff. Certainly. Yeah. Well, next time you come out here, we'll, we'll get you on the podcast, and we can talk about all kinds of fun USC stuff. Unfortunately, on the podcast, we've been talking a lot about the NCAA. I think uh, I think fans are ready to talk about some football again. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully this fall, like, the, the appeal will be over. If USC fans can kind of focus on that, what's going on on the field, and it'll be a little more fun to talk about. Absolutely. Sweet. All right. Well, Stuart, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for coming on. And everyone out there, thank you for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We'll talk to you all again next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 